Good morning, church. And uh, we are in the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bibles, would you please turn to the book of Malachi? It's easy to find. It is found in the Old Testament, and it is the last book of the Old Testament. And uh, chronologically, between the book of Malachi and the first book of Matthew, there's a 400-year silence. And so Malachi closes up the Old Testament, and then there's 400 years until Jesus comes on the scene in the book of Matthew. So let's open in a word of prayer, and we'll get into it. Lord, thank you today for your word, and we pray that it will encourage and bless your people, that, Lord, you'll be lifted up, and uh, that you will draw many people to you today in encouragement, in saving faith. And uh, we ask for your help in Jesus' name, amen. So just to review, the book of Malachi is really built around seven questions that the people asked God. These questions really revealed the state of their heart, uh, their doubt, discouragement, and uh, general disbelief. Uh, last week, we looked at verses 1 to 5, and uh, they asked the Lord, in which way have you loved us? Uh, today, we're going to look at two more questions, and it is, in what way have we despised your name, verse 6, and in, which, in what way have we defiled you, verse 7. And then the other questions are, in, which way, in what way have we wearied him, in what way shall we return, in what way have we robbed you, and in what way have we spoken against you? So last week, we looked at in what way have you loved us, and it's interesting, when we're walking with the Lord, we can't help but really recognize the multitude of blessing he bestows on us. But when our uh, hearts are dull and we're full of ourselves, we really have trouble identifying every, any evidence of God's hand or love in our lives. And the interesting thing is, is that God never changes. Uh, his work never changes. He doesn't change one iota. He is the Lord and he changes not. But the condition of our hearts always uh, changes our perception of what God might be doing or not doing. And because the condition of their hearts was uh, blind, they couldn't perceive how God actually was blessing them and loving them. So really, God answered by giving them a history lesson by comparing Jacob and Esau, the twin boys born to Isaac and Rebekah. Israel had descended through the line of Jacob, and Esau's line was the Edomites, or Edomians, and they became the nation of Edom. And God said, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. Now, God asked these uh, questions uh, that they would find assurance in his choosing or his election of them. He wanted them to understand that they are chosen and remain his chosen and favored people. And when the people of Israel would compare themselves to their neighbors, the Edomites, they saw that God had blessed them and chosen to preserve Israel while Esau and his descendants were punished. Now, God did not hate Esau in the sense of cursing him or striking out against him because when we read the Bible in the book of Genesis, we see that Esau was a blessed man. Yet when God had chosen Jacob, he left Esau unchosen 
in regard to receiving the blessings that he promised to Abraham. And we should remember the reason why election is brought up here. It's not to exclude, but to show the amount of comfort and love that God had for his people Israel. So how did God love them? By choosing them, by preserving them, by providing for them, by giving of great and precious promises to them, by protecting them, and that's just a few that we could mention off the top of our head. And so God is reminding them how loved they are every day of their lives through his abundant grace and mercy that covers them. The only thing that they couldn't actually perceive is what God was doing because of the condition of their heart. Somebody says God's moved, uh, I feel like God has moved far away. Well, the question really isn't has God moved, it's who's moved. And usually our hearts move because of the dullness or unbelief. But God is always near. He never can love us any more than he loves us today. He can never bless us any more than he blesses us today. Because when we receive Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, you didn't get a part of God's blessing. You got all of God's blessing. And it's the condition of our heart that opens us up to the reality and the realization of how much God loves us. A lot of times we feel like, boy, I feel so blessed today. That's great that you really feel blessed today. But even when you don't feel blessed, you're still blessed because God never changes. Amen? And aren't you glad that it's not according to our feelings, but according to God's faithfulness? So we're going to continue today in our series of Malachi, and we're going to pick it up in verse 6 because God's going to ask, if, well, they're going to ask God a few more questions. So Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then, if then I am the father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to you. And while this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you who would shut the door so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, to even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, in every place incense shall be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food, is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. 
Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has, a, uh, who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but the sacrifices to the Lord, uh, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So today I want to go through this passage with you, and I want to start by just taking you through the historical, theological context in which it is written, and then at the end I'd like to make some practical applications to our lives. So what is the historical, theological context in which we are reading this passage of the day? Well, the first thing that I would ask you is think of your favorite passion or your favorite thing to do in life, whether it be a sport, hobbies, passions, things that you like to do. Perhaps it's a certain author's books or it's viewing a certain producer's movies or it's watching a certain actor or actors on the screen or it's a musician at the top of their chosen instrument, a singer who's your favorite performer or a well-known personality who is famous for anything from cooking to cave exploring, from acting to adventure seeking, from beauty to boxing and everything in between. It's your passion. It's something that you like to do and there's someone at the very top of what you like to do, the very best at their craft uh, that you like to do and one day you get a personal invitation from that person to spend time in their presence. Now, you all know what I like to do. I like to golf. So if I got an invitation, say, from somebody like Jordan Spieth or Dustin Johnson or Ricky Fowler or Brooke Henderson, who is my favorite Canadian female golfer who just happens to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I got an invitation to come and be in their presence, I would sit I would watch, I would listen to what they had to say about the game of golf, and I would be in awe. I would watch them hit shot after shot, and I'd say, wow, how in the world can you make that look so easy? I am amazed. In short, I would be in absolute awe of their talent and their accomplishments, but what I would not do is to give them suggestions on how to play the game of golf. After all, I know what I am. I'm a hacker. I'm a duffer. I'm just a guy that hits the ball, chases after it, finds it, and hits it again till I get it in the hole. And then I spend a few minutes counting up all the strokes. But now I'm in the presence of greatness. In the same way, God says, people give honor to the greater in all walks of life. They have respect and awe for their titles and their positions and their greatness, just like a son to his father or a master and his servant or as Father God and his people. Yet, being in the presence of Almighty God did not seem to impress his people. And God says to his people, to his priests, you have despised my name. To which they replied, 
how have we despised your name? And God answered by saying, you have offered defiled food on my altar. To which they replied with a third question, in what way have we defiled you? And the Lord answers them by saying, you are bringing second best. Or you are even bringing the worst of your flocks and your produce as an offering to me. And the offerings that they were to bring to the Lord were to be the very best of their flocks and the very best of their produce. It was to be perfect without blemish. And their produce was to be the best of their crops and their gardens. But instead, they were bringing those things that which are no value to anybody. They would bring from their flocks the blind, the sick, and the lame, which had no value to anybody anywhere. And instead of bringing the best that cost the most as an offering to their Lord, they were giving what cost the least and which were sick and blemished as offerings to the Lord. And God says, in that way, you have defiled your offerings. Now, offerings that we bring to God are really an indication of what's in our hearts. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. And he who has been forgiven little, offers little. Warren Worsby says in verse 10 of Malachi, in this chapter, he told the disobedient priests that it would even be better to close the doors of the temple and stop the sacrifices altogether than to continue practicing hypocrisy. Better they were that no religion at all should be happening than a religion that fails to give God the very best. And if our concept of God is so low that we think he's pleased with cheap, half-hearted worship, then we don't know the God of the Bible. In fact, a God who encourages us to do less than our best is a God who isn't worthy of worship. In verse 11, the Lord rebukes Israel and reminds them that one day, even among the Gentiles who don't even know God, that his name shall be great from the rising of the sun on the one side of the world to its going down on the other side. He said that one day the Gentiles will offer pure offerings and my name shall be great among the nations of the world and yet among my very people who know who I am and what I have done for them, it is despised and defiled among you. So before we conclude today, let's just take a few minutes to make some personal applications about this text. First, what does it mean to despise the things of God? Well, since we've been talking about Esau in the first five verses, I want to turn your attention again to this guy named Esau because he is an example of what it means to despise the things of God. As a matter of fact, he's the poster child in the Bible for despising the things of God. Esau was Abraham's grandson. He was the older twin brother to Isaac and Rebekah. His younger brother was Jacob. Rebekah had a very difficult pregnancy, and God told her it was because there are two nations in your womb. 
One people will be stronger than the other, and the older, Esau, and his descendants will serve the younger, Jacob, and his descendants. Now, we know that Esau grew and became a skillful, skillful hunter, and his father loved and favored him while his mother, Jacob, favored uh, Rebekah, favored Jacob. So you have the first dysfunctional family in the Bible. We have the father showing favor to the eldest and the mother showing favor to the younger. And we already have jealousy and dysfunctionality in the Bible. Aren't you glad the Bible just tells you the way it is? Esau took his hunting seriously, and one day he came in from hunting so tired and hungry that he said he thought he was going to die. His hunger, along with the tantalizing scent of the red lentil stew his brother was uh, cooking, convinced him to give up his birthright when Jacob offered him a bowl of his soup. And because of his desire for this red stew, and Esau became known as Edom, which means red, the son with the birthright would always receive a double portion of the family inheritance. That's what Esau's birthright give him. And so Esau gave up his birthright for a bowl of stew. And so giving up his birthright was a big deal. For in order to fill his physical appetites, to satisfy his physical hungers, to fill his belly, the Bible says that Esau despised his birthright. And to make a longer story short, Jacob and his mother conned his brother out of his birthright and blessing so that it would go to Jacob instead. And when Esau found out, bitterness filled his heart, and he vowed to kill Jacob after their father died. Rebekah heard about the plan, intervened, and sent Jacob away to live with her relatives, and he ended up living with Laban. And Jacob never saw Rebekah again. In spite of the fact that all of this happened down the road, the brothers did make peace. Esau, though, the Edomites, never did get along with Jacob or Israel from that point on. Edom regularly opposed and fought with Israel and even cheered on sidelines when the Babylonians came in and laid waste to Israel. And a big part of the problem was Esau. Because Esau didn't think it was worth his birthright to serve God and to know God and basically turned his back on God for a bowl of stew. And they, as a nation, became pagans and enemies of Israel and of God. The prophets Jeremiah and Obadiah prophesied about Edom and said that God would bring disaster on Esau in Jeremiah and that the Edomites would eventually be destroyed because the book of Obadiah, only being one chapter, is dedicated to a prophecy against Edom. So what can we learn from Esau's life? Well, we know this. 
that Esau focused more on earthly things than on the things of God. He would rather have his physical craving satisfied than receive God's blessing. And the writer to the book, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews uses Esau as a negative example of godliness. And he says in Hebrews 12, verses 16 and 17, see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. And afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. The second thing that I would like to bring your attention to this morning is that the opposite of despising something, which means to hold something or someone with disregard or contempt, the opposite of despising is reverence or awe. What does it mean to have reverence or awe? Well, reverence is honor and respect that is deeply felt and outwardly demonstrated. That's what it means to have reverence. Because of the Lord's awesome power and majesty, the Bible says that he is deserving of the highest level of reverence. And one day, he will receive it. Because the Bible tells us that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Bible records reverence as the automatic response of everyone who has ever encountered the awesome grandeur of the Lord God Almighty. Have you noticed that in the Bible? For instance, when Isaiah saw the Lord in Isaiah 6, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and the seraphim were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I think of the New Testament example when the Lord Jesus said to the Apostle Peter after a hard night of fishing, cast out and throw your nets over the right side of the boat. And Peter said, we've been fishing all night. What do you know about fishing? I'm a fisherman. Nevertheless, to humor you, I'll do it. And of course, we know that the nets were so full that he had to call over another boat, and both boats were so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, in my humble opinion from reading the Scriptures... Reverence for God is always tied to our revelation of God. Reverence for God is always tied to our revelation of God. Show me someone that has no revelation of who God is and there will be no reverence for God. Show me a church where there's no, reverence, no revelation of God, there will be no reverence in the church. 
Show me a Christian that knows everything about God or has gone to church all their life but has no personal revelation of God. There will be no reverence for him. In Scripture, wherever somebody had a revelation of God as he truly and really is, rather than what we want to make him up to be in our minds, the cultural over, the, the makeover of God, rather than seeing and experiencing the God of the Bible as he really is, you know what they did? They fell on their faces before him in reverent fear. Because once you have a revelation of the awesomeness and the mightiness of God, you fall on your face before him. I was reading um, what you do when you meet the Queen of England. Because I couldn't think of any other real royal. I know there's other royals, but I, I just thought the Queen of England, who just celebrated her 94th birthday, by the way, Long live the queen. When meeting a royal, there are rules of who can speak first, where to look, what to call them, even how you should stand and where you should sit. It is a mysterious business to the uninitiated, and many people have made many mistakes when meeting the queen. I know I did when I met her. It says that the royals are treated as people set apart from the rest of us, so primarily what it is creating, it says, is distance and grandeur. So says Dr. Kate Williams, a historian at London's Royal Holloway University. William Hansen, a protocol expert who trained staff for the luxury liner of the Queen Mary II, says royal protocol can be, views, be views, viewed as an expression of respect for the queen. It is because we respect her and what she stands for, she stands for all that is great in British society. So we understand royal protocol, but do we understand divine protocol? The grandeur of our God, the holiness of our God, you know, it is so beyond our human comprehension of who God is. And yet, God is not like the Queen of England, for he invites us into his presence every day to be with him, to fellowship with him, to know him, and to enjoy him, which, when you think about it, is simply amazing. I can't imagine the Queen of England inviting any of her British subjects in for fellowship. Ah, yes, Your Majesty, I have received your letter and I have come at your request. What is the occasion, if I might ask, Your Majesty, that I should be in one of your many castles and in your presence today? Hey, I thought we might just have a sport of tea and a nice chat, a get to know you sort of thing. That doesn't happen with the Queen of England. And yet God invites us into his presence each and every moment of our lives to have fellowship with him. Another way we dis uh, demonstrate reverence for God is by the way we live. We live to obey the Lord 
because we are loved by the Lord and we trust in the Lord. Paul summed up the way we should live in his famous verse to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 24 and 23 and 24. He says, and whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So in everything that we do, we do it with an audience of one primarily. And that is, doesn't matter who's watching us or who's present, we know that the Lord is always watching over us. And so whatever we do, we do it unto the Lord and we do it with all of our heart. We live reverently. Thirdly, we show reverence for God by learning how to truly worship him. Jesus said that the Father is seeking people who will learn to worship him in spirit and in truth. And true worship is not about singing our favorite song. It's not confined to an emotional experience, and it's not synonymous with tingly feelings. True worship is a lifestyle. We worship in truth when our minds are engaged and filled with a biblical understanding of God's nature. To worship God is to know him and to serve him. And we as human beings are created to worship God. So reverence is the natural response of a heart that has been transformed by the Holy Spirit. And the more we grow in the knowledge and understanding of who God is, the more reverence we feel towards him. Now reverence is not the same as stiff religious formality. But nor is it on the other end a, oh, God's the big guy in the sky. He's my buddy. That's not reverence either. I find it very interesting that people who don't know the Lord but yet go to churches are filled with formality and this sense of religious awe, yet their hearts are far from them. And yet on the other side, people, Oh, the Lord, uh, they come in with this loosey-goosey sense of like anything goes. And that's not acceptable either. You see, where there's biblical revelation that brings us into an understanding of God, a life-changing experience of meeting God, there should be a beautiful reverence for God. Not religious stiff formality that is void of joy, love, and life. And not this loose irreverent ignorance of being cognizant that we serve a holy, righteous God who is awesome beyond description. Reverence is many things, but it is always defined by a revelation of God to his people. It is very hard to explain reverence. It is very hard to demand reverence of people where there's no revelation of God to his people. If you demand reverence from people who don't know God, you fall into legalism, void of life. But where there is a revelation of God, the Holy Spirit should be bringing about in us a spirit-led conformity to beholding him and giving him the reverence due to his name. 
And you know what? Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Man can't do that. I can't tell you to do that. It has to be a revelation between you and God. And when you see God and you experience God and you have understanding of God, there is a reverence that comes into the child of God's heart. Now, I'd like to just leave you with one last thought this morning. The last thing that I'd like to share with you today is how do we connect the dots of the Lord's rebuke to his people through his prophet Malachi to us today? Because the last thing that I want you uh, to take from this message today is that you walk away from this message going, I've defiled the Lord. I have despised the Lord. Oh, isn't it great to serve Jesus? I'm a useless and complete worm. I don't want you to take away that from the message today. So they asked the Lord, well, how have we defiled you? And how have we despised you? And of course, the answer for them is that they had lost the fear of God. They had lost a revelation of God. For them, religion became mundane. And they said in verse 13, oh, what a weariness all of this has become to serve God. They brought the second best and even the worst of their flocks and produce as offerings to God. And the Lord said, you know, it'd be preferable if you just shut the, t uh, the doors to the church so that I don't have to endure any more of this stuff. That you'd come to your spiritual senses and that you would understand that I am so much worthy than this. For he said, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Well, listen, today we don't have a temple. God hasn't asked us to go to our flock of sheep or goat or to our gardens or to our crops and to bring an offering to the Lord. So why is that? Because in the Old Testament, the Jews were looking forward to the promise of a coming Messiah, a deliverer and a savior but we in the New Testament have the privilege of looking back on that event. We look back at the cross and the perfect offering that was made on behalf of the guilty sinner, the pure and spotless Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Hebrews 10, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there because all of this will come into perspective for us if we look what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us. He said there in verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then they would have... Uh, for then would they have not ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. They had to continually bring offerings every week, every month, and every year for sin. 
And the writer to Hebrews said, if the blood of these offerings of bulls and goats was sufficient, then they would cease because there would be no more need. But they only covered sin. It could never forgive sin. So in verse 5, therefore, and when you see the word therefore, connect the dots. Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified, now, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus paid the sacrifice. He offered the sacrifice once for all, never having to be done again. Look at verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offerings uh, repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Why did I read all of that? Because who is our offering and who made our sacrifice? The Lord Jesus Christ. How many times did he have to do it? Once. Who did he do it for? For all. And what happened when he offered his blood? It rent the temple veil that separated the holy from the holy of holies from the top to the bottom, meaning God initiated it and brought that work down to us. 
that we might enter into his presence. Is Jesus' offering defiled? Is it despised? Absolutely not. What should produce reverence in the child of God today? In us? What should produce reverence in us is not what we're doing, but what has been done for us. What Jesus has done for us. What he has completely and perfectly done on our behalf. His offering is perfect, undefiled, on behalf of the guilty sinner. I don't know about you, but what produces reverence and awe in me is when I look to Jesus and what he has done on my behalf. It's not what I am bringing the Lord in my own self-righteous efforts. It's not what I am trying to give to the Lord. It is rather looking at what has done, been done for me on my behalf. Do you get the connection here? Have you come to the conclusion that without Jesus' perfect offering for your sin and my sin, that there is no hope of salvation? Are you feeling beat up because you're coming to God and you feel inadequate or unworthy or that you're never doing enough? Or that your offering is defiled and not good enough? I have good news for you today. Jesus made the offering that nobody could make on our behalf. It was his blood shed once for all on our behalf that should bring us into a sense of godly awe and reverence, of understanding, wow, Lord, what I could never do for myself, you did for me. And even when I did not know you and was far from you, you were loving me. I would like to extend a invitation to you this morning that it's not by what you are doing for God that makes you righteous in his sight, but what has been done for you through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that should give you hope and bring you into a godly awe and reverence of how much God loves you and what he did to bring you into a relationship with him. I would like to say to you this morning and, and, and extend an invitation to you that you can humbly receive Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior because of what he has done for you and not what you're promising to do for him. And for those of us who have come already to the Lord and received what has been done for us in his person, the Lord Jesus Christ, it gives, I hope to you, a profound sense of awe and reverence. I, I want to leave you this morning with not a sense of despair, but a sense of, do you see what Jesus accomplished for you? And if you do, does that not inspire you into a sense of awe and reverence to bring and give to him your very best. I pray that you will have this morning a personal revelation of God's love in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you so much that you are the perfect and pure offering. Your blood was shed once for all, the pure, spotless Lamb of God. And so this morning, uh, wherever you're watching and uh, taking in the service, I would like you to know that being a Christian is not promising what you can do for God, but it is receiving what God has already done for you. And what he's done for you is that he sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, sinless, guiltless, guilt, guiltless, and he shed his blood so that the guilty could be pardoned. And uh, I don't know if you have ever come to that realization and understanding of what it takes to be good enough for God. Fact of the matter is, none of us can ever be good enough for God. We can bring the best, and we could do our best, but apart from Jesus, it's never going to be good enough. So I would, I, would, I would encourage you, I would say a bunch of prayers or engage in being a better person or do good works or join a church or become a part of a, a monastic order or join a denomination. No, none of those things have anything to do with becoming a Christian. You become a Christian by receiving Christ Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And it becomes a choice that you make in your will, in your heart. You believe on him. You receive him. You ask him to forgive you of your sin and to come and live in your heart. It's so simple that it's profoundly simple. And so, have you done that today? If you'd like to do it, just simply pray this prayer. Jesus, I acknowledge that you've done for me what I could never do for myself. That you came and died for my sin. And uh, I open, Lord God, the door of my heart and invite you in. I ask you, Lord, to receive me a sinner. Cleanse me, forgive me, and uh, come into my life. Help me, Lord, to follow you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And if you prayed that prayer on a, uh, according to the authority of God's word, to many as received him, gave he the power or the right to become children of God. And if you prayed that prayer, you need to tell somebody. You need to tell your mom, your dad, your uncle, your aunt, your friend that you made a decision to follow Jesus. And now you need to also begin to grow. And we can help you in that. If you reach out and contact us, we would be glad. Or if you have a Christian friend or Christian parents, they will help you grow. So may the Lord bless you and encourage you today. And we're going to close in a song of worship, so I ask you to join our worship team this morning.